Hello, everyone. Welcome to Coalesce. Today's episode, I have Sarah Young, the author of Expansive Impact and founder of Zing Collaborative. I was introduced to Sarah in a unique way, and we talked about this a bit on the podcast, but I had been reaching out to people that I knew asking for leaders to interview on this podcast that they felt were very innovative. And a good friend of mine mentioned to me Sarah Young, who I never heard of her before. So I sent her in a message and she got back to me and I asked, hey, would you like to at least connect, see what we have in common and see if you'd be an interesting guest for this podcast? We ended up connecting and we had so many things in common. She is a fellow Midwesterner. She is based in Madison these days, but used to live in Cedar Rapids. I believe before the time I was living in Cedar Rapids, but we were both in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for a period of time. And we both did leadership coaching and training in the construction industry. And that's also a primary area where I had a law firm owned for several years. So we talk about that and um, how that industry has changed the work we do and how she's still involved with that industry myself as well at times. And it's really fascinating how we play that into this episode to talk about everything from you know, uh, how she works with leadership groups and dynamics to make sure that leaders are ready and prepared for the coaching that she does with them, how she facilitates and create psychological safety within organizations to make sure everyone is heard and then she kind of steps back and lets the magic unfold. So it's a beautiful conversation between the two of us where I feel I could have talked to her for hours. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah Young and listening in on what it's like to work with group dynamics, especially leadership dynamics within companies. Enjoy everyone. This is Sarah Young. Welcome to the show, Sarah. I am so happy to have you here, and I want to give everyone listening a taste of who you are in the world. So will you intro intro yourself and tell the world who you are? (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me, Jen. A pleasure to be here. So I'm Sarah Young, and I'm the founder and CEO of Zing Collaborative, which is the name of my company. I'm a, I'm the author of a book called Expansive Impact, an invitation to lead in everyday moments. And the work I do in the world is really related to leadership development and supporting leaders and organizations to elevate to the level of leadership that they need to get to based on what's happening around them. So typically speaking, I work with growing companies that are that are in the middle of some sort of significant, meaningful growth stage. So that could be a really big leap in revenue. It could be an expansion of the company. It could be some shifts and evolutions that they're going through. And whatever type of growth or evolution is happening, generally speaking, the, the company and the leaders are asking what do we need to do to get to this next level? How can we support our leaders and support our teams in showing up in the way that we need to show up based on not only where we are, but where we're going? And how can we support our executive team, but also our upcoming leaders at all, all levels of the organization as we continue to grow and evolve? That's most of the work I do today um, in the form of leadership development, executive coaching, executive strategy. It's extremely joyful. It's a lot of fun. I feel like my clients are just some of my very favorite humans. That's a little bit about the work that I do. And prior to starting Zing Collaborative back in 2013, uh, my background was in 
healthcare IT, where I got to do a lot of different things and a lot of different roles and really became very passionate about supporting leaders so that they could be uh, well-equipped to best support their people. Hmm. It's really interesting. And I do want, I'm going to take a step back and go then come back to your bio. And when you just talked about Sarah is one of the ways that I want to talk about you is I was reaching out to people saying, Hey, I'm looking for innovative leaders out in this world that are doing something really unique to bring people together. And a friend of mine mentioned you and she, and I'm pretty sure she was like, I'm not even sure if she'd met you personally, but she's like, this woman somehow came across my radar. She has this amazing book, Expansive Impact, and her Friday emails are just phenomenal. So I reached out to you randomly and was like, hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yep. know you at all, but yep. we'd love to get to know you. And you were just such a warm hearted response back to me. And your Friday emails are actually quite exceptional, uh, thank you. are exceptional. So I was just curious, what has that journey been like for you creating Zing Collaborative based on your background and now where you are now? When you first started out, did you know that you were going to be doing the work you are now or has it evolved over the course of starting up Zing Collaborative? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. And um, yeah, very glad that we got connected. And thank you. Thank you for your words about the Friday emails. I would say in some ways, the work that I've been doing has remained very consistent. So when I started Zinc Collaborative in 2013, there were a few things I did. They were one-on-one coaching, leadership development within organizations, and then a selection of offerings, women's coaching circles, and some selective speaking workshops, retreats, facilitated events, that sort of thing. And in a lot of ways, the core of my business had stayed very similar. So the through line has been the same since 2013. The offerings, as far as what they are, those have stayed really pretty consistent. I would say what has shifted and evolved has been the way that I've zeroed in on who I'm best equipped to serve and then what is the core of that offering and how can I serve people best. When I first started my company in 2013, I don't know if You've experienced this as well in your journey of starting your business or prior in in your previous life before doing the work that you're doing now. But I felt like in the beginning, someone would email and it was like, could you do this? Could you do this? Could you do a workshop on this? Could you teach us about delegation, time management, personal effectiveness, leadership, coaching, mentoring? In the beginning, I just said yes to everything and um, I created it and I designed it and I delivered it. And it was actually really fun. If you, my personality types, I'm an ENFP in Myers-Briggs. I'm an Enneagram seven. So I love like creating new things and creativity and new experiences. And so that was very joyful to just get to have a, a blank page and then create based on what was needed for the client at that time. However, <laughs> as you might imagine, that's not a super sustainable business model. And the way that my book actually came to be was I was joking with one of my girlfriends that over these years, I I had created so many things, all of these programs and worksheets and documents, all of these things. And we nicknamed these things, my 999 tragedies, because I would create something once and then it would go live in my Google drive and it would just die there. And it was very sad (laughs) because there was a lot of work that went into each one of these programs. And that was really a lot of what led to the book, which was 
what are the things that I've created over the years? What are the through lines? What are the threads? What's really the distillation of kind of the heart of my work and the core of how I can serve people best? That then became the book. And then that has become my signature offering that I do within a lot of organizations. So I would say, again, the what has remained very similar since the beginning, but the how and that distillation, that's really become refined over time, just narrowing in on, again, who who I can best serve and then how I can best serve them. Yeah. And it's so true that when we first start out, because I've got a little creator innovator in myself as well, where I was like, oh, that would be so fun. But there's this distillation, this refinement that happens. It's just the refinement has to come to get more focused, to be able to help people even better. And even I've told you that I was a lawyer for all these years and I was very niche. I became very niche in what I was doing, but there was still this through line for me where I really create a lot of harmony in a lot of people, like a lot of different elements on relationships. And I did that in the legal field and that's what I'm doing today. But I had to find let go of one whole industry and identity to be able to refine even further into what my mastery is. I think that's beautiful Mm. that you told that story as well. And you alluded to this about this expansive impact, but like when you think of that, and it's a word that, a phrase that I even resonate with really deeply. So I wanted to ask you for your personal viewpoint on what does expansive impact mean to you, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah, that was fun to find that alignment when we first started talking related to this idea of expansive impact. So for me, I think about it as the being and the doing. So for me, the idea of expansive is how can we show up in the world in an expansive way? And since the beginning when I started my company, and even prior to that in the corporate world, part of my why was around this idea of how can we be all of who we are? This this idea of getting away from separating parts of ourselves at work and in life and what can it look like to show up as all of who we are and also look at some of the dark spaces within ourselves it's what are the parts of us that maybe could use some expansion or what are the parts of ourselves that maybe we need to dial up or dial back in certain situations so that we can show up as the most effective version of who we are so this way of showing up as the most expansive version of who we are and and thinking about expansive possibilities and expansive ways of being. So that's the being. And then I think of the impact as the doing. So how can we effectively have impact in the way that we want to have impact? And that could be through our company, that could be through our leadership, that could be through our business, that could be with our family, with our kiddos, whatever that is. For me, it's that harmony of the being and doing. So how can I show up in the most expansive way possible? in service of the kind of impact that I want to have in my work and also in my life. Mm, Really beautiful. So give me an example for you. Where was an area where you realized you were ready for expansion? Or maybe I believe you said like a darker outpictured place that you reached into and found expansion for yourself. Mm, Yeah, a big one for me, and I write about this a decent amount in the book is I think for a number of years and a number of contexts, I really tried to squash or dim the part of myself that is, you know, connected to compassion and kindness. And nobody forced me to do that. It was a choice that I made based on 
feedback that I had received and con- various contexts that I was in. But I, as a result of those things, I had this idea that to be effective and successful in certain contexts, I needed to squash or dim those parts of myself. And so that was the opposite of expansion for me because <laughs> that's a huge part of who I am. One of the values of for for me personally and of our business is related to just kindness and and showing up in a way that is kind and compassionate. So for me, you know, what I guess one example would be working through that story that to be successful, you can't also be kind and compassionate and releasing that story over time and then stepping fully into that way of being. So that's been really joyful for me because nowadays it's also a natural screen and filter for, for my clients and the work that I do. Very naturally, if someone doesn't align with that, we're probably not a good fit to work together. And as a result, the the companies that I get to work with and the clients that I get to work with, they're just really amazing and also aligned with that idea that you can be really successful. You can have very high standards. You could hold people accountable, but you can do that with kindness and compassion along the way. Yeah. And it's interesting. I deeply resonate with that. And I don't know if I would have used the word kindness, but it's very related. I put on this like lawyer suit and I thought being vulnerable Mm -hmm. or showing that there was, it felt weak to me to really be like, Hey, here's where I'm at today. And that kindness where everyone was very authoritarian, it felt around me. So I put on that suit for a long time and it really changed what you said when I leaned into that for myself, it changed the people that I was working with. Mm -hmm. It was in interesting areas too. Like it opened up clientele that I was surprised. I should say surprised, like clientele that was deeply kind in ways that I think the society would not have tagged to be like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I would a hundred percent agree with that. And I know you and I have talked a little bit about alignment around some of the types of clients that we work with, but I would completely agree. And I feel, I don't know if this is true for you, but in some cases it's like within those spaces, there's a craving for that. There, there's something about the that softness or that kindness or whatever it is that really resonates in a space where maybe it's not talked about as outwardly, um, but it's it's like beneath the surface. I think about, you know, I talked about construction. It's a space we both work in. And I think about, especially if you look at the field crews and construction on the surface, I think there's a perception that it's this very gruff, <laughs> it's like this very gruff way of being. And in some ways, it's it they're doing extra, extraordinarily hard, difficult manual labor. And beneath the surface, when you look at a lot of times the culture of those groups, there's deep care for each other. There's, I've got your back. We're working on this thing together. We are building this building together and we're all in it together. And so I don't know, that's just one example that comes to mind when we're talking about the like the unexpected spaces in which this is resonating and also needed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree with you because there's even groups I've worked with, they will refer in the construction industry where they literally refer to each other as brothers and sisters. Yes, like yep. they'll approach each other that way and use that mm-hmm. language where it's a very much a family dynamic and a workplace that's interesting. I was born into, I knew my whole life. And I somehow thought in my mind, like I would not find these t- type of people there. Like, mm-hmm. These aren't my people. And then I realized like, oh, these are my people. They actually love being around somebody 
that can not necessarily speak to it out loud, but give them the feeling of, hey, I can help you. I can take care of you. We can do embrace this family lifestyle that you guys have created. Mm, yeah. And make absolutely. it even stronger. Yeah. yeah. And I love that example about brother and sister. I, I have uh, observed the same thing and even just like love, like I love this guy. I, lo- I love this person. And you, you see that and you hear that. And yeah, it's, I think it's a really cool, cool example of, of what we're talking about. Yeah, I agree. So let me take this a little bit in a different place. You talked about, I'm going to ask you about an example. I asked you for an example about yourself of of reaching into the spaces where you knew you could expand. Where do you see this more most often with the clients you work with? Is there a theme or a couple of themes where you're like, I often see this as a place that people can expand into as well, or does it always look different for you? I I would say both. So I, I would say there are themes and trends and also it varies based on the person. So something I look at a lot with individuals and with groups is where do we need to aim low and left? So low and left is a term that I learned from one of my teachers a number of years ago. And it's the idea that if we're playing darts and we are throwing a dart at a dartboard and we're aiming for the bullseye in the center, most of us have a way of aiming that is high and right. For me, for example, <laughs> I, if I'm not balanced and grounded, I my high and right can be like people pleasing or not honoring my own boundaries, whatever it is, saying yes too much. So that's my high and right. So if I'm going to try to get toward the bullseye, in order to do that, I might need to aim low and left. So low and left might feel really uncomfortable for me because it feels like I'm being mean or saying no or having too strong of a boundary or whatever it is. But for the average person, it actually feels like it's closer to the bullseye in the center. So something we look at in our programs is as leaders and as individuals, where do we all have opportunities to aim low and left? Because we almost all have those. They're just unique for, for each of us. So if we're someone who's super, super direct to the point that we leave people in a wake of our feedback after we deliver some news, our low and left might be to so- soften that feedback or just add a little bit more <laughs> kindness or a, a gentle startup when we do that. That's an example of that. I also talk about a framework around where are certain parts of us dimmed and where are they over-functioning? When you asked about that expansion, I find that for most of us, when we get ourselves into trouble, it's simply because some part of us that's a gift is over-functioning. Again, going back to my people-pleasing example or my lack of boundaries, whatever it is, that's a part of me that's that I'm really proud of in terms of its kindness, its compassion. It's a deep caring for people. That is genuine, authentic. That's not something I want to change about myself. But when that over-functions, it's like, I care so much about other people that I've actually forgotten myself. And that's over-functioning. So that's another thing that we often work on through my executive coaching and and the programs I do is where might something be over-functioning where we can bring ourselves back to center in service of that overall expansive balanced approach. Yes. I love this philosophy very Mm. much because I always say it's like the duality where one is so strong that the other one, I use weightlifting. um, Yeah. Like you got to pump the weights on the other side. Absolutely. Darts. I have a question. Do you play darts? I do not. So it's probably a metaphor that I 
I use the metaphor a lot, but I'm horrible at darts. So I guess I never thought about that until you just asked me. <laughs> it was worth a try. Yeah, yeah. Weightlifting would probably absolutely... be more resonant. Yeah. I know. I'm like, I think my darts go everywhere. Like yeah. A couple of times I've played in my life. And I was like, that's Absolutely. very interesting. I didn't know that was a trend, but it doesn't yeah. make sense what you're saying. Yeah. Love the analogy either way, even if you don't play darts. That's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's something that we related to when we first spoke. And I think this is beautiful in both of what we do in the world. And it's about creating this space for people to really bounce around and find out what these angles are for them, like how they can improve, like how they can bring more of their wholeness out into the world. I know you believe this is such a core part of what you do with people and how you either facilitate with groups or with individuals. Can you talk about what's your philosophy around creating the spaces that you bring people into to get the outcomes that they're looking for with the work that you do in the world? Absolutely. I was thinking about this a little bit in preparation for our, our conversation. And I feel like there are four four components if I had to really boil it down. Do we have the right people who are coming into the space? Do they have the right intentions coming in? And, and I can talk a little bit more about what I mean about that. But And then do we have the right containers? Are things set up for success? Are we creating psychological safety? Is there a container in which these conversations can take place effectively? And then do we have the right facilitation and prompts and guidance along the way? So I feel like that to me, if I really had to distill it down, um, those would probably be the four components, the right people with the right intentions. For me, if we get the right people in the room with the right intentions, that's where the magic can happen. And one tactical way that I work with that is when I'm working with a company everyone gets to opt into a program. So I will tell the CEO and the executive level leadership team up front that if there's a person that they want to participate, but who really truly does not want to participate and they're going to, they're going to show up physically, but not mentally or emotionally or energetically, I would recommend that they do not do the program because they're going to take away from the the learning and the transformation that happens for everyone. So when I'm delivering a program Everyone who's in that room needs to want to be in the room and they they consciously opt in. That's something I do with any organization that I'm working with. The same is true of coaching. We had actually a really funny situation just a couple of weeks ago where we had someone reach out about coaching and what great person, high performing person. And he did an intro call with one of the coaches on my team. And as part of the intro call, he said, pitch me on coaching. Tell me why I should do this. Tell me why I should hire you. Give me your best pitch. Give me your best pitch. And and we're like, no. <laughs> you seem awesome and you seem like a really high performer. And no, thank you. This is not a good fit because the the people that that are a good fit to work with us, they're ready. They're ready to go and they're in. And they might be trying to figure out who's the right fit to work with them, but they don't need a pitch on like why this might be a good idea. So that's the right people, right intention piece. And then the right container, this is something I'm really passionate about, the right container and then the right guidance. So I feel like in the last, what, five or eight years, there has been so much conversation about vulnerability and that's all great. However, I haven't seen as much widespread conversation about what are the conditions that make for a place where we can have vulnerabilities. 
psychological safety, designing the container up front so that it's very tight and that we have very clear agreements about what's going to happen in this room, what's going to happen outside of this room, and how can we all show up in a way that we can feel safe and actually feel comfortable being vulnerable? What can we expect from each other? That sort of thing. And then the skillful guidance and facilitation. So are we asking the right questions? Are we facilitating in a way that allows every voice to come forward? Are we asking questions versus just telling people what to do, whatever it might be? Some people who know me well know that I get really fired up about badly facilitated events. Like my classic example is a happy hour networking event where it's like, we're creating this space and we're calling it a a networking event. But really what it is, is you show up at a bar, you wander around, you feel uncomfortable, you, you never have an introduction, there's no design, and then you leave. <laughs> so how can we create the opposite of that where it's, we've got the right people, the right intentions, we have the right container that is clearly consciously designed, and then we are um, intentionally, skillfully guiding people throughout that process. Okay, so I have to talk about this networking thing. Ah, yes. <laughs> Because, okay, let's go a little. I find that networking function cringeworthy that you described, like completely cringeworthy. But some people, I don't, I always wonder like how many people love this method of networking because it's the same for me. I know I love to have deeper conversations Mm -hmm. than the average Joe to drop in with a couple of people, smaller groups, but the large networking just does Mm -hmm. not float my boat. And Mm -hmm. I, I, the fact that you brought that up and I was like, I feel there's no intentionality behind it. And I also believe in a lot of intentionality. Totally. Do you have another like example in your head that's we should just shift the world all over to this kind of networking function. Yeah, it's, it's. I appreciate that you feel the same way. So thank you for sharing that. It is interesting. I had it happen at a book club recently too, where it was a it was a sort of a public book club, and and a similar thing happened where it was like you showed up, and again there were no introductions, there was no design, there was no framework, there was no agenda. It was just a whole bunch of strangers in in a room and the the person leading the book club was like, okay, guys, what do you think? And then she just started talking about what she thought about the book. And I was like, this is a very strange book club. I think in general, I'm with you. I really like the intentional gatherings. And, and I think you're right. Perhaps not everybody wants those. And perhaps for some people, the the happy hour networking event where you're just milling around with a beer is actually really rewarding. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that if that floats people's boat. But I... In my aspirational world, I think these events would have a clear why and purpose in terms of why are we gathering? Why are we getting together? What is this all about? There would be some way to connect people with each other. If the group is small enough to be able to do introductions, great. But even if not, could we have name tags? Could we have some way that people could make a meaningful connection with each other? And then is there some sort of like theme or thread or through line that could connect people throughout the course of that event so that they're coming together with some sort of purpose or some shared connection or whatever it might be. I don't know. That's my aspirational vision. Um, But again, like you said, perhaps not everybody wants that. I don't know. What about for you? Is there a, is there there a version of that for you that would replace the bad happy hour networking events? 
Yeah, I think we see things very clearly because the one word used throughout all of that was connection, mm-hmm. like intentional connections. And I've done a ton of research, you probably have as well, on what connection actually means from like how it is the one thing to overcome addictions or yes, yeah. when somebody's in depression, anxiety, like connection is how that evolves for a person gets somebody out of it and fills their cup up. And it's the same individually inside a person as well as in groups. And I find large networking functions that is lowered. And it speaks to the point of creating containers where vulnerability can happen is something that's Mm -hmm. intentionally crafted through the way you set up the connection. And I'll give an example Mm -hmm. that really landed this for me is I joined a mastermind. Mm -hmm. And once I got into it, it just was the calls were planned and you did not know what was coming up on any of the calls. There was a lot of them. It was several times a week, all of a sudden, which was like, they were over delivering, but with no information. So I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know who was going to be there, what was going to happen. And when you talk about psychological safety, it was doing the opposite effect where it was causing me to be like, I do not desire to be a part of this. I actually got out within a week of joining this, like two weeks and this is not aligned. I pushed back and pushed back. And they're like, why? And I was like, to be honest, it goes against my values. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there is no consciousness around how to intentionally set up the space. And that was the moment when I realized with all my work going forward, like that would be a priority for me. So I don't put on big networking things because I, unless I can tap in, that's just not my jam in general, but If I lose the ability to really allow people to come together in a deeper manner and have intentionality and be able to inform them of what they can expect and how they can move throughout the environment the best for them in a way that feels safe, secure, nurturing for them, that's where I land. That's my go-to and that's how I do the work in my world. I love that. And I'm smiling as you're talking just because I feel like the more we keep talking, I feel like (laughs) we are just such kindred spirits. I had a very similar situation about a year ago where similar situation, I joined a a group and very similar, like the very unorganized, very haphazard in terms of what to expect on on those calls and in those conversations. And I remember showing up, I I think I showed up to two, two initial calls and the feeling of the lack of psychological safety was so intense that it it was a visceral experience that I I could not engage further. And in that case, I ended up forfeiting thousands of dollars because I had paid for this thing and there was no, there was not an option for a refund, but the price, it was like one of those things where the cost benefit, the way it shook out for me was I would, I I chose to forfeit thousands of dollars versus continue to show up in a space that felt so inherently unsafe is too strong of a word, but where there wasn't that space for connection or openness or vulnerability. And it was clear that the path forward would not, would not allow for that either. So I very much relate to your experience. 
Yes, yes. It sounds like we have a very mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. Uh, experience. And let's talk about, because we are kindred spirits here, like, let's talk <laughs> about this psychological safety, because I think that's a word that's thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And since we both believe in it so strongly, and I'll give an example for mine, when I was in that experience, and I've had other experiences like this, one of the tests that I give myself is when I'm in somebody else's container, how do I feel and how does my body react? And I can tell you, Sarah, going back and thinking of this, it was the weirdest experience. I would get on these Zoom calls and it was like halfway through one or two things happen. Either I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? Where's this? And I just don't do that in life. Like I'm pretty Mm -hmm. like on all the time. Mm -hmm. And the second Mm -hmm. thing was like, I would get halfway through and I would just be like falling asleep. Mm -hmm. Also something that doesn't happen. It was like my body was shutting down because they were like, what? And I was like, this is just a fake amount of excitement that's yeah. just like somehow taking my body literally out and mind out. So it was like showing me like, this is not a container for me because it's exo- it was exhausting me. Yeah. And yeah. My body was like flaring and it was saying like, nope, not a container for you. Yeah. What do you think of psychological safety? How are ways that you describe to people and what that may mean to them besides just using those words? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I would say tactically speaking, tactically speaking, some things that we can do to create psychological safety. Number one, do people know what to expect going in? Tactically speaking, in a workplace, that could be a clear agenda. It could be a clear definition of what we're going to talk about and what our outcomes will be. Agreements and how we're going to work together. So this to me is huge. If we're coming together as a group, whether it's over time or even just once, do we know what we can expect from each other? So what do we agree to as a group being part of this experience? So I know for another group that I'm part of, when I first joined, there there were people there were people coming in and out and there was no agreement in terms of confidentiality. And so that was something I asked the facilitator to say, hey, this is great, but but if I'm going to be talking openly about my business or different things that I'm struggling with, I I need to be assured that we collectively are holding this in confidentiality because right now there is nothing in writing. There's nothing expressed that says this is confidential. This is a confidential space. Some sort of shared agreements that we can all come back to. What I like about those two is it takes some of the pressure off of the facilitator. So hopefully the facilitator or the leader of the meeting, perhaps they're the one facilitating the conversation about what the agreements are. But then if we have those agreements, we can all hold them together. If you and I are in a meeting together and we notice Joe is not upholding the agreement, even though maybe you're the facilitator and I'm a participant, I can still have a voice for, hey guys, it looks like we've maybe veered off of our agreement. Can we come back to this thing? So it 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 distributes the accountability across the group versus having the facilitator or the leader have, having to hold that. Clear expectations up front, a clear set of agreements as far as what we can expect from each other. I think in the meeting, and I think this can be one of the trickier trickier pieces of this, are we truly allowing all voices to be heard? There's that idea. I think it's considered amplification where if you say an idea and it just gets people just ignore it. And then maybe someone else in the room says an idea and they're like the same idea. And they're like, that's a great idea. (laughs) For me as a participant in that meeting, can I say, actually, yeah, that is a great idea. I think it's similar to what Jen Jen just shared a couple minutes ago. So are we making sure all voices are heard and contributing? 
if we have someone in the meeting who's completely dominating, can we skillfully, kindly say, hey, let's hear let's hear from someone we haven't heard from so far, or let's make sure we're allowing all voices to, to be heard. And then also preference-wise, are we setting up our meetings and spaces in a way that supports different thinking styles and different processing styles? For example, another tactical thing that we can do is if we're having a, a brainstorming meeting is actually not good for all types of people. So a brainstorming meeting might be really good for an extroverted person who likes to verbally process in real time. But a brainstorming meeting actually is often not that supportive for an introvert who likes some time to process. If we're having a brainstorming meeting, could we send out the prompts ahead of time? We allow people to write down their ideas. Maybe they bring their ideas in writing and then they submit them and then we talk about them. We're honoring all Uh, all different kinds of thinking styles and processing styles. And then do we have clear agreements on the other end? When we walk out of that meeting, do we know what we've agreed to? And do we have a set of clear action items? Do we actually follow through on them? Do we hold each other accountable? Those sorts of things. Those are some tactics that I would offer. And then thinking about your situation in that mastermind, The other thing that comes to mind for me, which is more of an energetic piece is what I call clean and dirty energy. So this is a phrase that my friend Jenny Blake and I came up with when we were trying to sort through some ideas around this, which is when we are interacting with someone or when we are in a space, does the energy feel clean? And for me, this this barometer is so helpful because what I have found for myself is my tendency is if I'm in a space that has dirty energy... I can be quick to diminish my own experience and I'll say, oh, that's not really what's happening. This is me. I'm just ma- I'm just having a weird experience. I'm misreading this situation, whatever it is. And you know, maybe sometimes that's true. I'm just having a bad day and I need to like work with that and process that. But what I have found is if I go back to clean energy, all the situations in my life that have turned out not as I had planned in a, in a negative way if i would have paid attention to the dirty energy at the beginning it would have immediately it would have immediately solved my question <laughs> so it's i'm curious for you when you're in that space it, it feels like there was some dirty energy and it's almost like your body was coping with the dirty energy by shutting down or having that inner dialogue as a way of dealing with that oh yeah you're 100% correct mm. And this is another thing where I also speak and deeply feel energy. And I've also worked like my partner is just has had to honor this because he does not read a room in the same way or read an experience on the deep level that I do. So I get you there, but it was a hundred percent unclean energy or dirty energy that I was feeling. And I also had the little inklings to say, Hey, but I was watching and hearing people share about having incredible results. And I was like, Hey, I would love to do it. And my mind overpowered my body already knew was dirty energy. Yes. And when we, whenever I do that, it doesn't work out this as well. And I can tell you every single client that I've ever had dirty energy on in my law firm. And then I knew probably from the very beginning and blah, blah, blah. And it's like these things that I would override until I trust myself. That's one area where after that experience, it's like line in the sand. I trust myself now when there's dirty energy, like you said, which is a great analogy. 
I don't do it. And it's even this funky thing where I can walk into a shop or a restaurant and just be like, nope, not for me. And my, yeah. this is where my partner has really had to be like, doesn't make sense logically, but we're now leaving. Yes. Yes. And I was like, I'm not going to enjoy this experience. I'm Absolutely. Leaving. I 100% agree. And it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because again, logically, uh, for me, and I, it sounds like perhaps for you as well, logically, like logically, there's probably nothing wrong with this restaurant. Logically, um, we can argue that there's nothing wrong with this space or logically, like you said, we can argue that people that go through this program get really good results. But I'm similar to you where it's a vis- it's a visceral experience and it's like something is off here. And I love what you said about from this point forward, I trust myself because I think that is so powerful. And that's something I still have to work on a lot because again, I feel like my logical mind can be so strong, but it's like, what could be possible if we do trust ourselves and we allow ourselves to experience that energy? And it doesn't mean that's the same for everybody, but for us in that moment to listen, tune in, and then make a choice accordingly. Yes, I very much agree. And I love tuning people to their own tuning fork in this way because people do it in very different ways and how they process this information and energy. I do have one question for you about the self-trust if you're open to it. Yeah, go ahead. Do you have your other question pinned? No, I don't. You're going to ask? It hasn't come back yet. So go ahead. I was just looking at like, where do I go in next? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering for you, I find... So, so your line that you said, from this point forward, I inherently trust myself. I, th- I think that's so powerful. And I find for, especially, not exclusively, but especially for women who I work with, that can be so difficult. Like mm-hmm. from this point forward, I trust myself. So I'm wondering, do you have practices that you do that allow you to do that? Or how have you gotten to that point? Because I think it's a really powerful point to get to, but it's not an easy point to get to. Agreed. I agree with you, especially for women. Yeah. And I was actually in another course where a male leader that was leading it mentioned that he's like women, and it was something around confidence, like, how do I know I've got enough or I'm doing this right? And I remember him distinctly saying, women are the only ones that are really suffering from that. Mm. You do enough move forward Mm. and it was just this reminder of the fact that we question ourselves so much and our intuition and what it's saying because I think we're very strong in it what I've got a lot of practices my number one is I've studied human design and I've studied Mm. like how my own decision making comes through and mine's a gut instinct yeah so I practice leaning in on my gut instinct and seeing where I override that And then I just really, I trust when something feels icky. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably my biggest radar. And I have to, for me as a human, I tend to go against the grain a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So many people question why I was starting my own law firm. And with a lot of doubt, so many people questioned why I sold my law firm. So many people have questioned a lot of decisions I have made in my life. Wow, that was really bold. Some people respect it highly too, and people question it. And I've always known that I'm going to just have this my own little pace through life. And the more I can embrace that, I'm going to go and be my curious person and allow myself to lead myself wherever I lead in life. I just do it. I think that's the part of my trust is 
I know best for me because I'm a people pleaser, a recovering people pleaser always. And it's just trying to follow that path. And I love supporting other people too. And just keeping that as my root and the impact I'm looking to make in the world as my decision-making matrix on how I move forward as well. Yeah, I love that. And what really jumps out to me is it feels like it's it's almost like a two-part process. So it's trust, what you call trust when something feels icky or trust in my case, what I would call dirty energy. So trust that feeling. But then I think the second part is really impactful when you said And as a result, you have to be willing to go against the grain because the decision that you might make or the action that you might take or the thing that you might do or not do, that that might be the unpopular thing or that might be where, you know, you feel like you're getting a lot of backlash or or eyebrows raised or whatever it is. So it's like, how can you stand in both the self-trust and then the willingness to go against the grain if that's what's needed in that situation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about for yourself, Sarah? Mm, I think that's a really good distillation. I think for me also a pause is helpful. I find that if I'm moving too quickly, I can get into that that pattern of overriding the self-trust or overriding my own energetic experience. It might happen. It might be like a micro moment and then I'll keep going um, versus stopping and then really asking myself, okay, what does this really mean or what can I learn from this? I think I've also had, I've had a few very challenging situations over the past five years or so that have been what (laughs) they have been very clear signs that when I don't trust myself when I don't listen, things can go very badly. And I was just talking to a friend this week and she was reflecting back for me with one of the situations. She said, Sarah, things actually had to go that badly for you to be able to get to this outcome because she was saying, knowing you, you would have continued to engage with the situation and that really wouldn't have been healthy. And so it's it had to go that badly <laughs> so that there was no no chance of that happening. So I would say for me that the pause, slowing down, really listening. Sometimes also I find it helpful to gut check things with trusted people in my life. So I do have a couple of people in my life who I would say are also very intuitive and who know me really well and having a trusted inner circle where occasionally if there is something and I can gut check it with someone, that can be helpful for me. And then like you're saying, and I'm saying, remembering, remembering the outcomes. Sarah, remember five years ago when you didn't listen to yourself and you you did overlook the signs, remember what happened. I also have found a really interesting little bit of data where oftentimes in the situations that didn't go well, there was something in an initial interaction or an initial introduction that made me raise my eyebrows that I overlooked. So nearly 100% of the time, if I go back to like, when was the first time I engaged in this situation? Or when was the first time I met this person? There was something. And those were the situations where I overlooked it or I overrode it. Or I was like, oh, that's nothing. But then when I went back, I was like, oh, why didn't I pay attention to that one little very early warning sign? Oh yeah. I use that a lot in interviewing and hiring Mm, people over the years. And I find other people that are, especially if they have similarities to us where they 
have that people pleasing, like supporting of others inherent in the core of who they are can also do that. And I will say something in case this example resonates with somebody, it's like this guttural feeling in me, this, this intuitive hit. And the way I could describe it most is I'll be, I was on, I love to hike. So I was hiking a mountain in Alaska by myself because I was visiting a client on a trip. This is usual for me. And I was like way up above the tree line and I'm like hiking away. And all of a sudden there was something that was like, oop, you're off the trail. And I, it was just like this, like you're off the trail, like this full panic sets in and you're off the trail. And I looked around and was like, am I really off the trail? I'm pretty sure I'm on the trail. I was off the trail. And I was like, looked Mm. back and I was almost like on the side of a mountain. Oh, wow. Yes. And I was like, how did I get here? I don't even know how I can get back, but I just deviated from this trail, probably 20 feet, but it, it got me in a treacherous place. Hmm. And that I've had that happen several times on trails. It's once happened backpacking with my partner and he was like, let's keep going. And I was like, we went too far. We went past the water source and we didn't know where we were exactly, but it was always like, trust that moment. And when I've gotten into situations, there's always like this time where it's all of a sudden what's happening here. This is not right. Like you have to do something out. And when I go over, that's where things can really get, ugh. Like really icky for me. Yeah. So I had to try to also be like, that's a guidance system, but it feels weird to just be like, I don't know. I just feel like I'm just panicking and it's trying to reroute me. And if yeah. I don't reroute, it comes back. Yes. So whatever the message is, it comes back. It'll like cycle through again and I'll see it in a different way and be like, oh, welcome back, dear friend. Here totally. It is. Did I learn? Yes. Yeah. I love that as a metaphor for this whole idea of. We might be hiking on the trail and we might get the sign that we need to reroute or pivot or take a detour or whatever it is. And that's the sign. And then I love what you're saying. And just again, as a general metaphor for this idea where it's, if we choose to ignore it, we can keep hiking, but we're just going to get further off the trail. And the then the reroute is going to be perhaps longer or more significant, or we're going to have to backtrack three miles instead of Point five. So that's such a powerful just visual for this idea that we're talking about. Yeah, it is. Because the whole time you're rerouting and I'm on that, I'm like somewhat in, I'm in fight, flight, or freeze because I'm panicky and like, how did I get here? How do I get out? And that's exactly how it feels when you're dealing with clients, customers, team that doesn't work anymore. And it just feels like that. It's like this, ugh, this craziness going on in your body. Yes. Let's deviate off since I'm pretty sure we could talk for another three hours. Exactly. (laughs) But at the very beginning, you mentioned your impact. And I knew from there on, I would love to ask you directly, what is the impact that you're looking to make in the world through your work, your life, whatever you do? What does that look like for you, Sarah? Mm. It's funny. When I first started my company, I used to think of the word impact in a bigger way in terms of not that I ever thought I was going to have this massive impact with millions and millions of people, but I think I thought of the word as wide spanning, let's say, and who knows if that's an, an outcome or not. But I guess the way that I think about it now is more in the micro moments. So I, for me, I feel like I'm having an impact when I am in integrity to myself, when I'm integrity to the other people that I'm working with or interacting with. 
and when I am in integrity to a greater good. So that can happen in micro moments every day. That can happen when I'm working with my clients. That can happen in these spaces that we're talking about. But for me, I would say that would be my greatest compass of in any given moment, can I confidently say, yes, I'm being in integrity to myself, to other people, and then to the greater good. So if I'm doing that, I feel like, yes, I am having a positive impact. And tactically speaking, the way that works for me is in a work context, am I working with and partnering with clients where I feel like there is that mutual uh, currency of an in- of integrity both ways? And then doing some fun things too. My company is a member of 1% for the planet. Very tactically speaking, 1% of all of our top line revenue is donated back to approved nonprofits. And so that's just a little tiny way that I feel like I can tap into that greater good piece where hopefully there's some positive impact happening in the micro moments. And then there's also a little bit of impact happening for these bigger, broader issues that we're navigating as a society. And I guess the other way that I like to think about impact is a ripple effect. The way that I like to work with clients tends to be deep work ongoing over time. So while I will occasionally do a one-off workshop or speaking event or a one-off session of some sort, my favorite way to work with both individual clients and companies is ongoing over time. And what I find so rewarding about that is seeing the ripples of impact that can happen within an organization. With some of my groups, we've been working together for many years. And so now we have these groups of people who have gone through these programs and we have leaders who've continued to evolve on their own journey over time. And now they're leading another group of people and facing these new challenges at a new level. And those ripple effects continue to just trend outward. And I think watching that ripple effect that can happen, like if there's a touch point that happens perhaps in our work, and then that leader gets to go back and impact a whole bunch of other people who impact a bunch of people. And in a best case scenario, the majority of those touch points are positive. Um, Watching that I find to be really meaningful. Mm, It's so beautiful. I really love that, Sarah. Mm. Thanks for sharing it. I relate to the high integrity, the planet, the 1% of the planet. Mm. I have loved about you and the work that you do as well. I'm a huge Patagonia Oh yeah, follower, should I say, mm-hmm, with their mm-hmm. business, yeah. business philosophy there. So it's really beautiful. What's next? How are you expanding in the near future? Mm, yeah. In the last year, I have brought on a few um, coaching partners, which has been a really fun way to be able to continue to serve more folks one-on-one with a very small team of coaches. So that's been a really joyful uh, bit of expansion on our team. And in my own business, I'm really, I'm really thinking about what I want that to look like. I have a vision of continuing to grow my company and continue to be able to serve, you know, new clients and serve over time. And I also really love working deeply and meaningfully with people. And so the question that I can continue to hold is how can I continue to grow and have that impact through the things that we do, but in a way that continues to really honor relationships that allows for that deep work, allows for that meaningful connection, that sort of things. That's a question that I'm continuing to explore. And in terms of 
what's next? What does expansion look like? One thing that my friend Jenny, who I mentioned that we're doing in Q4 of this year is we just launched this new event. It's called a a business bestie brunch and pop-up mastermind. So it's for business owners. And that to me is a fun bit of expansion because the question that led us to this event is what would be the kind of event that we would want to go to and how could we create the thing that we wish existed? And it's going to be this really like luxurious feeling brunch in New York City. It's going to be coaching support on both ends. And that to me is a fun little bit of expansion just because it's creating an offering that's super joyful for us, super joyful for the participants and bringing some kind of fun and creativity and joy into both of our businesses um, through this shared experience. So that's one other little kind of fun thing that feels expansive at this moment. That sounds just amazing. Mm, thank you. Because you're, you're not from New York. So. No. Yeah, that uh, sounds lovely. And I always like to think that as entrepreneurs, we're creating what we wish existed in the world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or what we wish we would have known about 10 years ago and yes. where we were. Yeah, exactly. So uh, tell me, Sarah, if people would like to learn more about you and get to know you even better, what's the best way for them to go about that? Yeah, thanks for asking. So the best place is probably my website. That's zingcollaborative.com, Z-I-N-G. And there uh, people can find information about the book. You also mentioned Friday Favorites, which is that Friday email. I send it out every Friday morning. It's free. It's filled with reflections, resources, inquiries for leadership in life. And then usually there are some fun things in there too, in terms of an article or podcast or product recommendations, those sorts of things. So people can sign up for that at zingcollaborative.com slash Friday favorites. We also set up a special page for your audience and your community. So if people go to zingcollaborative.com slash coalesce, they'll find a link to our podcast episode that we're doing today. We have a, a nice little free download for your community. If they would like to check that out, it's all about like staying calm in stressful situations. So if you get an email that makes your blood boil, what are some practices that we can do to stay calm in those moments? And then there are a bunch of other resources on there. Those would be a few things that people could check out. We do also have a a few other workshops and events and things coming up over the next couple months. So people are welcome to, to go to the website and just poke around and see what they find on the blog and the upcoming events and around the site. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And thank you for creating that space. I was looking at it this morning and reflecting back to you. There were certain pieces that I absolutely adored and thought it was just extra special that you created that. I'll make sure to link that for everyone so you can see it in the show notes and check out what you're doing. Where'd Zing, Zing Collaborative, where'd that come from? Yeah. So when I was starting my company back in 2013, I was trying to think about what is the energy that I hope to cultivate through the work that I'm doing. And so when I looked up Zing, if the definition is like liveliness, which to me felt like aliveness. That was the spirit of the word. And at the time when I initially started my business, it was Zing coaching, but I realized very quickly coaching was one part of what I did, but it was just one part. So it felt a little bit confusing. A, few, a couple of years later, I changed it to Zing Collaborative. And now 10 years later, it was not actually a very good name for the business. There are a lot of Zing things out there. There are like Zing like granola bars, there are Zing design firms, accounting firms, grocery stores. Now looking back, it wasn't likely the best choice, but 
we're over 10 years in, so we're just, we're still going with it. <laughs> I just feel that words are getting used all over the place. Yeah. Especially because you're the, she's like, do you know you have expansive impact on your website? And I was like, I do. And I yeah. like one of my tags. So it's just something yeah. that just keeps happening in my totally. world as well. So it just happened. So I yeah. that, but I thought I'd ask. I love that. Well, yeah, thank you, yeah. Sarah, so much for joining me today. We have so many similarities in how we see the world. It was such a pleasure getting to talk to you at Oasis and going a little deeper with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. And yeah, I definitely feel like we could geek out on some of these topics for several more hours. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah.